Greetings, dear listeners. Great episode this week with our old friend Damon Linker. Damon, who has an excellent substack called Eyes on the Right and a must-listen-to podcast over at The Bulwark, recently wrote a piece arguing that Shadi has been insufficiently worried about democratic decline. As you can imagine, it was a very lively discussion. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. Support our work and get access to bonus episodes as we grow the site into a bigger community. On to the show. Demir, get us going. So, I mean, yeah, I guess to get us going, Damon, um, you know, I, I, I suggested to Shadi we have you on um, over a Twitter exchange that I think happened before you and Shadi got into, you know, your back and forth about about um, about democracy panic and, uh, you know, the, the uses and abuses thereof. Um, it was it was the, the conversation you and I were having or you were having and then I just sort of jumped in as one does on Twitter, was about DeSantis and the threat he presents. Um, I forget who it was. Uh, someone had published a piece of like why DeSantis is going to be worse than Trump or just as bad, if not worse than Trump. And then we, there was a whole sort of back and forth around that. Um, I guess maybe the way to kick this off, though, is to just maybe take a step back before diving into DeSantis and, um, you know, the specifics of Shadi's stance and his criticisms of all of this and just get your sense um, about give us a t- take the temperature of the country. Um, how worried are you? Were you relieved by the elections? Um, have you been disquieted since looking at the news, watching sort of the developments? Um, where are we uh, as a country politically? Yeah, uh, good question. And as always, it's it's a complicated picture, at least as usual for me. Um, I guess I, I was I, I I was encouraged by the election because uh, Republicans were not rewarded for some of their intransigence and uh, the the kind of the acting out that we've seen from them since uh, Trump's loss and January 6th. So I, I, you know, the looking at, as the political scientists say, the thermostatic uh, tendencies in, in elections in this country, you would have expected the Republicans to do a little better than they did. They didn't do terribly. They did uh, win more votes for the House, for instance, than Democrats. But uh, you would have expected with the thermostatic considerations of the out party from whoever holds the White House tending to gain seats combined with, you know, the highest inflation in 40 years and uh, uh, high gas prices in particular um, and, and various other things, uh, but very low approval rating uh, for Biden uh, heading into the election. You put it all together and you would have expected the Republicans to maybe pick up 30 or 40 seats in the House. And they picked up, you know, a, a couple, a dozen or so. So uh, that was a disappointment to them. And on the whole, I, I think I approve of that disappointment and the lesson that one would hope uh, it uh, would be carried over to them. More broadly, 
Um, I'm a little less worried now than I was uh, at, at previous moments over, say, the last six to seven years. There are a few reasons for that. One, Trump finally does seem a little bit to be weakening. Part of that is his own kind of age and lack of energy, it seems, and quick-wittedness, his own kind of demonic um, uh, charisma seems to have waned somewhat, uh, which I think is good uh, as we head into 2024. Um, I would much prefer to see DeSantis or really anybody else be the Republican nominee in 2024 so that it's a good sign if Trump is weakening. Um, and on the whole, the Democrats, I think, have governed fairly well over the last couple of years. I very much approve of Biden's handling of uh, the Ukraine crisis and war with Russia. Um, I can't really think of any large. I have, you know, various small criticisms of this or that decision along the way. But in general, I think uh, they've they've handled it uh, really expertly. Uh, and then domestically, if you look at what ended up passing from out of the House, uh, it was it was some good, solid domestic, center-left domestic policy things, um, not uh, stuff that would have been much more polarizing and uh, left-leaning. And that was a product of the Democrats having a relatively narrow majority in both houses and not being able to get more of what the progressives were clamoring for. And on the whole, given that as as we, I mean, I was on I was on the pod here uh, a couple years ago, sometime during the Trump administration, I think, or maybe just after. And I I know we talked a bit about you know, the fact that I'm more worried more worried than. Let me put it this way: I'm worried about Trump's attempt to turn himself into a dictator, but I'm far more worried about the country tearing itself apart in a kind of centrifugal back and forth stress as the pendulum swings from progressive left to reactionary right and back again and each move is undertaken as if its own side has an overwhelming majority of support when in fact it doesn't the country is deeply divided but it's narrowly divided and because it, the divides are so deep the the two parties don't govern as if the divide isn't as narrow as it really is so um on the whole, you add everything up over the last couple of years, and I'd say, all right, we're steadying a little bit where the swing has narrowed a little bit, despite what we're seeing from the House Republicans and their attempt to kind of pull things very far right. But, you know, what they can actually accomplish until we at least get to the debt default thing later in the year uh, is pretty minimal. Um, OK, so so, Damon, look, um you know what's interesting about uh, the way you talked about that? I mean, I feel like very broadly, the three of us are in agreement on the diagnosis. No, Demir, put stop. It there. <laughs> I, I think that's true, but but I, it gets at something. I think it, I think I can figure out maybe the way to get at the disagreement I, because I think in the the broader picture, right? And and I think that the interesting part of the agreement is that we are. Um, not just in agreement, that we're in agreement and we most worry about this, the country tearing itself apart, that part, that this kind of, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of, uh, you know, indignance, uh, uh, basically othering, like a, a lack of ability to reach compromise, all the sort of things you sort of need for um, 
for for democracy. What's interesting, though, is is I guess is I'd ask you is what role does punditry, rhetoric, um, raising the alarm over democracy's demise play in saving us from the worst things that can happen, as opposed to exacerbating the same tendency we're saying that we're all worried about. You know what I'm saying? Because, because you know, I, I think on the one hand, and I'll let Shadi speak for himself, but as I read Shadi often on these sorts of things, he shares my and presumably your worry that this this process that we're most worried about of this sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say radicalization, but just sort of catastrophism leads to a kind of democratic decline in and of itself. And so, I mean, when you look back at the elections and look at back at where we are right now, is did things work out well because there was adequate catastrophism and efforts to minimize that are misguided because we wouldn't have had good outcomes without that? Or, you know, are these were these positive outcomes just the result of the fact that we have a successful and healthy democracy on some level? And it's just sort of a phenomenon of that. Yeah, well, good, good questions and good way of posing them. Uh, and the reason why I know that that's true is because I don't have a pat, easy <laughs> way of responding, um, which means that you've gotten at, uh, I think, a real truth and complication uh, or a kind of complex dimension of our reality. Um, I guess I would say that... Uh, you know, whenever I do confront a question that leaves me sort of looking at a complexity is to assert that, well, it must be both and <laughs> as opposed to either or. And I, you know, as I said in, you know, where the background to the conversation is that Shadi had been tweeting some things and wrote uh, some other longer pieces uh, that that was critical of some of what uh kind of center left media and pundits had been saying about the the danger of of democracy when in fact you know the election turned out okay and you know if you listen to the rhetoric of Joe Biden at his couple of uh events though the one in Philadelphia where you know Constitution Hall was all like glowing red and it looked almost like he was at a, a satanic meeting and and he was talking about the imminent end of American democracy so so vote for me and my party and all the policies that I will now list off that are supposed to be understood as synonymous with the regime of democracy like that, that I also like, especially when it's Joe Biden saying that who is the president and is the head of one of the two parties in our system that made me cringe a, a bit be for the exact, for exactly the reasons that uh, Shadi has been touching on and some of what he's written on this topic, because um, it's a, I mean, there are two levels here and, and this is something that Americans often have trouble grasping because of the terminology we use for these things. So, you know, we have two parties. One of them is the liberal party and the other one is the conservative or the right wing populist party now. But then we also talk about how our our form of government is a liberal democracy. And, and so when Biden comes out, and he starts a speech talking about how 
the head of the other party, Donald Trump, tried to overturn the last election and had a self-coup. And this is dangerous because the members of his party uh, are affirming that. And the polls show that a lot of members of that party, voters, believe the election was stolen and believe the lies that he was disseminating to keep himself in power. He's talking about a threat to liberal democracy, the system as a whole that is the structure within which both parties contend for power. But then when he transitions to, so vote for me, and here are all the great policies I've enacted over the last two years, he becomes a liberal Democrat, capital D, meaning he's a member now of his party and he wants his party to win and the other bastards to lose because that's what normal politics is about. And it's that slippage that is dangerous because you... And But there's no easy way out of this problem because it is that most of the danger at a concrete level is coming from one of those parties, namely the Republican Party. And so if you're worried about the threat to the regime, it is more dangerous to vote for the Republican Party because – because of, well, we saw what Trump did the last time and the dissemination of lies to justify what he did. Um, and, and so I don't really see a way out of that. And so I guess the, maybe you could say that my position on this kind of what to do is that Biden shouldn't be saying that, what he said. Now, this is a separate question from whether he should say it because it'll be electorally advantageous to him. And given the results, maybe it worked. I know a lot of people, a lot of Democrats have sort of responded to critics like like me who who were kind of cringing at this and said, ha ha, you were wrong. It worked. See, we won. But, you know, when you're talking about a very close election in a million little districts, you know, saying what the one cause is, is going to be a fool's errand. And it's itself part of the political contest to try to establish which cause was the right one, mine or yours. Or I'll just jump yeah. in, Damon, just to say one thing, you know, just my experience on that is different because I, I say, you know, and this actually irritates Democrats more, is I say your president was panic mongering uselessly you fell for it and you won the election bravo machiavelli <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well it worked it worked yeah. whatever it was um so i mean i get so as i was about to explain like my view then is that biden should not be really saying these things but pundits analysts intellectuals people who study politics and try to understand what's going on can and should say it and debate it and get into the into the weeds on it because let's be honest we're not that influential i mean the biggest of us is pretty influential at like a several orders of remove so like you know if matt iglesias does a blog post about what should be in the Build Back Better bill, and it's read by Ron Klain, and he hands it around the White House, the West Wing staff, and they read it and talk about it, and it influences what they say when they go to the Hill for debates about what should be in and what shouldn't be in the bill. Then you could say Man Iglesias in that one Substack post had an influence, and you can trace it. But, you know, I have my little sub stack and it's it's read by a few thousand people. And 
you know, they like it. But like, who are those people? They're not the most influential people in the world. All I've done on the best day is maybe clarified some of their thinking about what's going on in the world. And that's perfectly fine. That's what happens in civil society, in a free society. So I say everyone can say that. And then in between Biden at one end and little old me at the other end, you have someone like Rachel Maddow. She has a big audience. How big? I don't know, about half what Tucker Carlson has. That's that's a pretty big difference between two million and four million viewers. But even Tucker, you know, people say, look at how influential he is. And he is. But he's still only watched by four million people in a country of 330 million people. So like... It's just a big, teeming, noisy country, and for the most part, it's fine for us to debate and warn and cajole and demonize each other um, without worrying that it's going to do any fundamental damage to the regime uh, of liberal democracy. But if Biden does it, that's more worrisome, and... um, and in general, I, I just think that it's important that those of us who recognize that there is something really pathological about the the, the matches with which some Republicans are playing uh, that, you know, I, I, I three years ago, if you had said like, we're, you know, we're going to be a country that that had a self coup attempt. You would have been like, "Oh, come on, you're 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 being you're being ridiculous here." That's that that happens in the banana republics, as we say in our not at all uh, condescending way. Uh, but you know, hey, look where the banana republic is now. You know, we we had our experience of this, and uh, you know, Trump hasn't walked it back, and. Um, there are intellectual justifications of that kind of extreme exceptionalist politics where like the stakes are so high that it's legitimate to seize power because if the other guys take over, it'll mean the end of all that's good about our country. When you ratchet up the rhetoric that high, <clears throat> you know, this the stakes the stakes go up with the rhetoric because the danger of it actually be, you know, spilling into reality and not just being, uh, not just being a kind of reality show that I'm living in my head on Twitter. Uh, like now people are actually reading those tweets and, you know, buying a ticket to fly to Washington on January 5th so they can be there for the big rally and then, then, then march to Capitol Hill and make a bit of a mess. So anyway, I'll, Stop my blathering with that, I guess. <laughs> well, I just want to make a note that um, many people say that wisdom of crowds is extremely influential. I'm just telling you what I hear from other people. So I just many want to. Many people are saying. One might yes, say. many people are saying. It has been said. It's better to say it like that so it's officially passive voice. Yeah. So let me. Uh, so there's a lot there that I, I want to unpack. Maybe I'll just start by saying that. Damon, you wrote a piece that took me to task for my complacency about the threats to democracy. In the nicest of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, like, what I, the reason that it's hard for me to really be critical about the article, because the article starts off on a beautiful note, and that is what lingers in my memory. And if I recall, and, you know, sometimes I am susceptible to flattery, so forgive me for that. But the first sentence of your 
supposedly, well, your otherwise critical piece of me was, I believe, I admire Shadi Hamid. Something That's like how that. You or I off. like, I like him no, both no, intellectually actually... and personally. No, or... da- Damon, Shadi, Shadi, Shadi studied this carefully. He yes, he's memorized. He wouldn't misquote, he wouldn't misquote <laughs> phrase. To me, to be more exact, you said, and I'm just double checking here. I admire author Shadi Hamid. So those are five words that I think are are beautiful. So you know, with with that said, um, let's get to the substance. So, okay. There's a lot I can say, but maybe I'll just start with this. Well, first of all, I've never actually used the word coup in describing the January 6th insurrection. I am comfortable using riot, insurrection, and any number of other pejorative things. And maybe this is where I start to diverge, that I don't see January 6th maybe in the way that others do, It was obviously a very scary day, and it's a day that should, you know, um, figure into how we view our recent history. And I think that most Americans should be aware of what happened that day. But when we use words like coup, to me, just based on my experience with actual coups in other parts of the world, that word has a particular connotation. It implies usually some involvement of the military of the of the deep state, so to speak, of the judiciary, it tends to be well organized. Uh, to to have a military coup or to attempt one, you have to coordinate with other members of the regime or the opposition to whatever whatever um, government you're trying to overthrow, depending on the case. So. Those elements are not really present at all in the case of January 6th. And maybe that's one reason that I just, so I already from there, I start to use different words and different terms. And those are, those matter because I think it does, it does suggest that I might be more complacent because I view certain events differently. I don't think there was any realistic chance of the insurrection succeeding precisely because it didn't have the buy-in of the military, of the judicial branch, of even a significant number of Republican politicians. I mean, it's worth remembering that only only seven GOP senators voted uh, re- refused to, de- to refused to certify the election results, which is a pretty small number in the end. So all of this suggests that there wasn't an actual chance of our government being overthrown. And that's just worth keeping in mind. Now, like just to fast forward, because, you know, we don't have to get stuck in the past. I, it is true that I don't actually write a lot about how Republicans are really bad and worse than the Democratic Party. That is my view. And I've actually said this on previous episodes. And Demir has actually um, objected. I have never voted for a Republican in my life. And I'm not going to vote for a Republican, even on the local level, for the time being. And my reason is very simple. I have one non-negotiable issue, and that's respecting Democratic outcomes that are not to your liking. And comparatively, there is no doubt that Republicans are worse than Democrats on this one very specific thing. So in that sense... I actually take this very seriously. I think one party is not as committed 
to procedural democracy as the other. And that's not to say that Democrats are great on this either, but at least they're somewhat better. Now, I actually think that the GOP is worse than the Muslim Brotherhood when it comes to respecting democratic outcomes or any number of far-right movements that I've supposedly far-right or right-wing movements that I've studied elsewhere. Um, I would take the Muslim Brotherhood over the GOP when it comes to procedural democracy any day. Um, you know, I'll just say that. With all of that said, though, I guess I guess that my my big issue here is that I don't see any plausible scenario through which, let's say the midterms had turned out differently instead of the GOP gaining around a dozen seats, as you said, Damon, let's say they gained something in the middle between 12 and what we thought they would get like 30. So let's say they had um, a gain of 22 seats. It's unclear to me how that better outcome for Republicans would have actually led to the dismantling of American democracy, because that is actually what people were saying, because sometimes people say, well, oh, Shadi, we didn't literally mean that there was an imminent threat to democracy. We just meant there was a threat to democracy in some kind of broader sense, just something to be like worried about. But we didn't think democracy would actually die. But ac- but that is the argument people were making, because when I, you know, looking back at what various folks were saying, they were not just counseling us to be concerned. As as you said, Damon, Biden actually said that democracy was on the line in a very literal sense. That was the entire thrust of the speech that he made uh, five or six days before the midterms. So this was a very serious claim that respectable folks were making on the center left of the political spectrum. But when I play out the scenarios, I don't see any way that even a better result for the Republican Party would have put in motion a series of events that would actually call American democracy into question in some fundamental sense. Because let's say you had four more election deniers who won, um, or even 10 how would that translate? You know, it's, it just it's it's no one's ever really laid out to me what democracy dying in America actually looks like. It's hard for me to conceive of that scenario. And maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit more, because that's where I always hit a kind of brick wall and how I try to you know reason some of these arguments out. We're also a big country, 50 states, as chaotic as you mentioned. It's a it's um it's an unwieldy unwieldy country. So it's not like Hungary, where you can actually undermine democracy more effectively because you control the media or it's a more centralized system or, um, you know, and it's also worth remembering that in the U.S., most mainstream institutions are left leaning. So there's just a lot of obstacles to Republicans actually taking control and overthrowing the system, even if they wanted to, because they're just, it's a very, it's a very difficult country to manage. And it's unwieldy in a way that most other countries aren't because of our, our federal system. And lastly, I'll just say that a consolidated democracy has never turned into an autocracy, short of situations of of um, foreign occupation or or wars, it just doesn't happen. The closest case that I can come up with is Hungary. And as you have said in your own writing, Damon, 
I don't think it's right to call Hungary an autocracy right now. It's maybe moving in an authoritarian direction. There are serious concerns about what the ruling party is doing. But I don't, it's not correct if we look at any of the major political indexes to say that Hungary today is an authoritarian regime. It's not quite there yet. So this would be a very rare thing for a democracy as old and consolidated as America's has been to actually make the shift. It would be sort of unprecedented from a historical standpoint. And now the num- it's true that the number of consolidated, consolidated democracies isn't super large, but based on the evidence that we have and based on the history that we've lived, it would be a new thing. And I'm not one to kind of emphasize black, black swans as likely. Yes, black swans can happen. That's why there are, in fact, black swans. But should we actually orient our rhetoric around something that is actually not very likely to happen? I don't deny that there could be a 3% chance or a 6% chance, but I don't like to write with a mind to under 10%, you know, likely occurrences. I guess that's, and yeah, anyway, there's a lot there. So I'll just maybe start there. Curious what you think. Yeah. um, Yeah, that was all very good and interesting. Um, I do want to start with the past with the coup question, um, just because I do think it sets up some of the other things I want to say. I totally understand where you're coming from on that. In fact, immediately after, I think even on the afternoon of January 6th, I denied it was a coup. Um, I've actually come around on that and, and accepted, uh, the sense that it analytically, it makes more, most sense to think of January 6th as having been a failed attempted self coup because I don't know what else to call it. Clearly, Donald Trump wanted there to be a coup. Now, it, it was it close to being more than failed? No. As you say, like a real coup to succeed needs buy-in from elites, the military, uh, senior political officials, uh, especially, but especially the military. Um, and that was nowhere near happening. So as we saw with all of the ridiculous uh, kind of court appeals that the Trump and his allies were attempting in the two months between election day and January 6th to kind of prove election fraud and judge after judge, including Trump appointed conservative judges, just throwing those out of court. The judiciary did exactly what it's supposed to do, which means the institutions held. And that points to your later point about the solidity of consolidated democracies. So what you had was, was in effect, the president of the United States behaving like a temper tantrum, uh, fueled, spoiled child running around trying to break things. And he wasn't able to break very much because the room was was padded, locked down, had had all kinds of safeguards to keep from any anything bad from occurring outside the confines of that temper tantrum room. Uh, and that's all very, very good. But the very fact that we had a president who tried it and was supported by a meaningful faction of his own party, um, 
you know, sitting here in a podcast as usual, I don't have all, all my papers and research things and tabs open as I would if I were writing about this. I believe the number is 164 members of the House. Uh, I don't recall the precise word wording for what they favored, but they uh, you said seven Republican senators didn't want to certify electoral votes in one state or another, and 164 Republicans in the House were in favor of raising more questions about the, the vote in different states. That I found at the time and continue to find incredibly disturbing because that means that the majority of the of the of the caucus of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives was not accepting the legitimacy of a free and fair election without any empirical evidence to back it up. On the day after that vote took place, the day after the people in that room had fled from a violent mob that had been whipped up by the head of their own party. All of that is extremely ominous because, again, one mark of a consolidated democracy is that crap like that doesn't happen in the first place. So, yes, the institutions held, but... In most consolidated democracies, you don't have the temper tantrum fueled toddler throwing a fit. And we had that along with a bunch of supporters. And ever since then, Trump has never backed down. Polls consistently show that a majority of Republican voters believe him, not the system that has stood up to say, no, Joe Biden won. That's very bad as well. Um, on the on the the kind of the bigger question about consolidated democracies and how much we have to fear, I don't know. I know the definitions that political scientists like Sam Huntington use to define consolidation, and it's the two turnover test and some other things. Um, I would say that uh, you know I know the case for saying that Weimar Germany was not a consolidated democracy because it had only existed for a decade or so, and then you could maybe make the case that Chile under Allende wasn't consolidated because you know it's Latin America and they they always have lots of ups and downs and coup attempts and so forth and it's rockier there than it is in the United States and in kind of northern european and north american democracies but i would say that both of those are cases where you saw a you saw a liberal democracy in which a person is elected and the end result was i think and actually this goes back to what i said earlier about my my bigger fear being centrifugal forces uh, and huge swings of the ideological and partisan spectrum kind of ripping the country apart. In both cases, you can tell a story about the collapse of democracy in those places as precisely that, that in Allende's case, a guy who is quite far left wing wins wins the entirety of political power of his office while only winning one third of the country's votes. And he governs as if he has a mandate from the whole country to do things that two thirds of the population did not vote for him to do. And he refuses to stop even as inflation is climbing and the CIA is meddling in it and trying to create extra trouble for him. And the result was a coup in which you 
had a dictatorship uh, put in power for a certain number of years with uh, Pinochet. And in the Weimar Republic as well, you see a series of elections that lead to collapsing governments and and then eventually uh, the National Socialists taking over while also winning about one third of the votes and then governing in a dictatorial way and using the reaction of the left to his assertion of power as an excuse to seize more power. That kind of dynamic, I'm alarmed as an American because there were things about that whole episode surrounding January 6th that remind me of those kinds of dynamics of, of, and, and it even goes back and here, you know, here's where I really piss off the, the left. Like, I, I think the story of January 6th in, in a deep sense goes back into the summer riots where, where left-wing protesters were permitted to to make a real mess of a lot of cities and the right was very very angry about that and um i i think there was a kind of reluctance on the center left among democrats to criticize that violence and that's the kind of thing that you that you again saw in Weimar where like you know, street violence from the left is met by street violence or, you know, I guess in the halls of Congress violence by the right. And then imagine if Trump had sort of even for a day or two seemed like he might be seizing power. You could imagine very quickly left wing protests erupting all over the country and violence and then Trump trying to nationalize the National Guard and send in the troops as Tom Cotton advised him to do over the summer. And he sends them in and accident happens a bunch of people get shot by soldiers which inspires even bigger uh you see what i mean like i'm i'm very agitated as an american to have seen even the first couple steps of that say 15 step process that can lead to democratic breakdown happen in this country so that's yeah i'll, I'll leave to it be at that let, yeah, let me just clear, jump in, Shadi, before you... Yeah, yeah sure. Just one really quickly. You know, the only thing I'd, I'd just add, though, and and then, you know, I'd let the two of you just go at it, but just to... Just torque it a little bit, Damon. Uh, in my mind, it's not the summer riots that did it. It's Russiagate that did it in many ways. That's ultimately where where a certain kind of sense of, of real, you know, half the country, the country's elite institutions convinced themselves that our president was installed by Putin. And I don't think I'm overstating that very much. This was a, I mean, to me was a very clear thing. We had Fiona Hill on a couple of, maybe like a year or so ago as well. In her book, there's a passage where she even talks about the fact that this was precisely the the wildest dreams the Russians couldn't have hoped to have succeeded as well as they did with their minor manipulations to actually instill that that level of mistrust between the parties and get the ball rolling on all of that crap. She absolutely, you know, it's in her book and says that. And, you know, and to, to make the point, obviously, it goes way back before Russiagate. I mean, the, the mutual sort of recrimination, the delegitimization is a feature of our politics has been going on for a very long time. You know, one can Trace it back to Pat Buchanan's speech in '92. I don't know how you want to, where you want to sort of the draw Bork the line. Hearing, the, the Bork hearings. I mean, I yeah. I mean, there there yeah. are any number. So I agree, of course. I mean, and I. But I, 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 I mean, I, I take your point that you know the the last thing is I'll let Shadi react to that. You know, because I think that's interesting how you guys parse these two things. Uh, but but you know, it's 
that's why for me still, that's why I still sort of align with Shadi on this. It's, it's, you take the, 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 you don't have to take the, the 20 year, 30 year view of it, but take the six year view of, of, of politics in last and So it's not just going back the summer before, but this, this, the cycle of delegitimization to me starts with the just absolute disbelief of a lot of people that can't imagine that a democracy would elect someone like Trump. That to, to me is so core to a lot of this sort of this, this stuff is that like democracy is good, Trump bad. What's going on here? And that kind of thing leads to both the delegitization of the first election and this kind of nasty revolt of the populists who say these people don't even think we have the right to vote. And that's the kind of logic that's, that's pushing a lot of this. So sorry, I just wanted to jump that in because I didn't want to lose that point because I know you guys are going to be going on different things. So Shadi, go ahead and like – Well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I wasn't really going to mention Russiagate, but it is, it is relevant and I've, you know, I've talked about it elsewhere that – yeah, in my view, I largely agree with that, that the center-left – never really center left slash left um, never really came to terms with the legitimacy of Donald Trump's election. Um, It wasn't, yes, Hillary did concede all that was fine, but like deep down there, I think Russiagate was basically an ongoing effort to delegitimize a democratically elected president. I mean, there's just no way to get around it from my standpoint. So I think that that poisoned the waters. And if we do want to go back, obviously, this isn't about a blame game. And it doesn't justify the craziness of Republicans subsequently. But at least the Repub- like the right wingers that I know were radicalized by Russiagate. And they were also radicalized just more generally by what what they perceived as the the unwillingness of the so-called deep state to allow Trump to actually express his ideological and and political preferences not just Trump obviously but the true believers around Trump the idea here is that they their efforts were foiled every step of the way through the institutional setup of the US government. And again, I just I think that I do tend to take cultural power really seriously. So the fact that the vast majority of America's elite and elite institutions saw the world in a particular way and saw Trump as illegitimate and did whatever they could, you know, with their megaphones to delegitimize the Trump presidency. I mean, all of that is relevant because it does set up what comes later. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's you're you're absolutely right, and it that is an under theorized aspect of of the Trump years. Um, I mean, I know on the right they talk about this, but uh, you know, it, it it isn't just with Trump. I mean, Obama came in wanting to close Guantanamo Bay. And he tried for eight years and it's still there. <laughs> Why? Well, because he would say, start the process and they'd be like, yes, yes, Mr. President. And they'd leave. And then they would say in the hallway, 
let's slow walk this. You know, we're, we're not going to do that. We, we don't, we, we don't know what to do with the people at Guantanamo Bay because we can't put them on trial because we don't want to release into the public record the, the classified intelligence that we have on them. And we, we don't really have any other normal legal justification for holding them. So therefore we have to sort of just keep these couple dozen people in this limbo forever. And I know Obama doesn't want to do that. He's a good guy, but we, we can't let that happen. So we're not going to let that happen. You think the president's the most powerful guy in the world. He is in some ways, but you know, um, I, I, I get troubled sometimes when I hear, uh, you know, stories at the time. And, and even sometimes there are other, you know, new revelations about how, you know, Trump would say, let's do this in foreign policy. And, and, and then the generals would leave the room and then nothing would happen, just nothing at all. And they would hope he'd just forget about it. And because he's Trump, you know, two thirds of the time he would, but then he'd remember like nine months later and be like, Hey, why didn't we do this? And they'd say, Oh, we're working on that, Mr. President. And then they leave and Mike Milley goes, we're not going to do that because no, we got got to keep the troops in Afghanistan. Now, Biden was able to get out of Afghanistan because he and his team know more about how to actually make them do it. That's right. That's <laughs> Whereas right. Trump, Trump was a b- buffoon and he was surrounded by people who were like two thirds not with him on those those things. So, you know, they would they would, you know, confirm to Millie outside of the room. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. We'll, we'll talk him out of it. Don't worry about it. We'll handle it. Um, and, you know, that does raise interesting and troubling sometimes questions about well, who who really is running this country. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's not so much the deep state. It's just I mean, that makes it sound more like hidden than it really isn't. It, it isn't. It's you can look them up. The people who work in the executive branch. <laughs> yeah. And the so-called argue- adults, adults yeah, in ahead. the room. I mean, people right. loved using that phrase for years. It was contrary to the democratic spirit to see things. Oh, thank God we have adults in the room who can constrain the will of those deplorable people who voted for Donald Trump and and so on. But I think this has gotten so little coverage that I actually don't even remember what happened. I vaguely recall seeing a couple articles about it, and then it was memory hold. Wasn't there something about a top American general who gave the Chinese a heads up saying, I can't even remember what it was because no one really covered it. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Vaguely. Uh, yeah, I was, it was during, I don't remember what episode it was, but yes, I remember a story about somebody letting China know that something that Trump was on and on about, like, don't worry, like, that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the fact yeah, that I, we can't even rem- remember this is incredible. I'm just, because so it I wasn't a big up, story. If it, if it had been reversed ideologically, yeah, it would have been, but the that's crazy, story right? The, the fact that, um, a top, U.S. military officer would do a run around the president and warn a competitor, a challenger like China. Adversary, I mean, it just, it's remarkable. Enemy. Use and the words. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Enemy, Rival enemy. to adversary. adversary. Yeah. And just yeah. to make sure that I'm not imagining this, I so he, I just pulled up an article and the headline seems to confirm that this was actually real and I'm not just imagining it. It's from NBC News, legitimate, uh, you know, 
<laughs> not like a far right. Well, look you know, look for the correction at the bottom. No, just it says <laughs> Millie. It said uh, Millie, referring to General Millie, acted to prevent Trump from misusing nuclear weapons. War with China. Book says. So yeah, there, yeah, that was, it was in something. his book. It was some some story in his book. Yeah. No, I yeah, think yeah, this oh, yeah, what you're told, referring to is something um, earlier, though. I think something like this happened pretty early. Oh, I don't know. Let's not, no. This yeah. is days before the 2020 election, um, where Milley, General Milley, called the head of China's military and told him basically, "Don't worry, quote unquote, we are not going to attack." If, oh yeah. If we are, and, oh, this, he's quoted as saying, "If we if we are going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise." <laughs> right. That's remarkable, and I just want to, you know, I think that we'll include a link to to some of the the coverage that it did get, um, including this article. If people want to learn more about it, that's remarkable to me. It actually, anyway, in a weird way, it reminds me of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, except instead of Kennedy calling the shots and having back channel conversations with with the Soviets it's it's Millie having back channel conversations with the Chinese to go around the president <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's right. I mean the way it happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis is the way it's supposed to happen and this this is not the way it's supposed to happen but yeah. you know but, it but is part of me I'll just I'll just be straight up part of me I remember when I would hear things about the military doing end runs around Trump, my my instinct was to feel that this was good. Early on, I was actually very happy that folks like General McMaster, um, uh, Chief of Staff Kelly were around the president constraining him because I don't want like any like normal, not crazy American doesn't want to see Trump doing crazy shit when it came to like, I don't know, invading, you know, I don't know what it would be like invading Iran or something. Like, well, I guess his, well, he was against that. And no, then his, he was, anyway, I mean, that's not the, a good the policy example. preferences were dismantling NATO and that's what drove people nuts. <laughs> like, no, be yeah, fair exactly. to that. Like, you know, when, when he said launch cruise missiles at Syria because all the beautiful dead babies, he was, he was like, yeah, launch, let's go guys. So, I mean, that was never an issue there. To be fair to that, Trump was thwarted in, in going against the military more often than not, not in was in yeah. from starting on. But I wars. personally don't want us to dismantle NATO. I'm pro NATO. Me too. And I'm hawkish on some of those things. So sure. I like some of these outcomes that there were these hawkish figures around him who were preventing him from going too far on some of these so-called isolationist ideas. But from the level of principle, if we are in fact committed to procedural democracy, irrespective of the substantive outcomes it produces, we got to stay consistent and we got to hold the line. So I have to I go agree. against I agree. My- during during the, the some of those earlier episodes, I mean, uh, I wrote it the week and my colleague there at the time, Noah Millman, uh, who's uh, a, a very smart kind of self-taught realist analyst of these things. We, we both wrote columns that sort of said, like, you know, you can applaud the outcomes in these cases, but what we are seeing here is coolish behavior from the center. Like, you could imagine, like, what we're seeing is is a kind of right of liberalism Republican. So, like, not center-right, but, like, a little outside normal center-right. So he's sort of... Uh, I don't I don't like the term isolationist because it's inevitably polemical. But but clearly in the 
I, I can't even say realism and restraint because he wasn't really restrained either. He simply, he simply, you know, he was okay bombing Iran if it meant, uh, you know, killing a bad guy. And then, and then, uh, but he wanted to pull out of NATO. And, he, they, you know, first he was talking about missiles flying to North Korea, then Kim Jong un's his best friend. You know, he was just crazy, just like no real strategic thinking at all. But he was the elected president. And the idea that the really scary thing is that he was so seemingly like crazy and unpredictable and dangerous in some of those, especially early incidents that one could imagine him giving an order and the generals around him just saying, we're not going to do that. Sorry. And that is in not in not in a fudging way, a coup, because they're the ones who now, uh, you know, have sovereignty. <laughs> and um, and and that would have been applauded by the mainstream media and the Democratic Party. They would have been very <laughs> pleased about this. Yes. And and when when you're in a situation like that, that's bad. <laughs> that's, you know, it's like, like, yay, we had a coup. The generals are in charge. Like, what? Why are you happy about this? <laughs> because yeah. you assume that they'll hand power to a Democrat next. And um, it's also that the center left now apparently loves... The domestic intelligence agencies, like whether it's the FBI or just the national security state. And I have my profound disagreements with former guest um, Glenn Greenwald. But I do think he has a he has a point on this, that there's something kind of ironic that, you know, the center left is embracing these things. Um, I mean, I, I, would, did, wanna, my, 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 hmm. I did want to just briefly on that. I mean, I agree that it's certainly noteworthy. I would say it's best to understand it as a kind of reversion to kind of immediate post-war, early Cold War center-left liberalism because they were there before. I mean, the Democrats yeah. were in charge through a lot of that period and they were all pro FBI and overseeing the CIA and starting the CIA and launching it on its way, doing what it did. Um, the good old days. Yeah. And so what you ended up seeing is because of the Vietnam War and the counterculture influencing the Democratic Party is it moved away from that toward a more skeptical position toward those institutions. And now because of in reaction to the right, uh, they're like right back in there. So what, what Glenn is is lamenting, uh, while, you know, arguably troubling is, is certainly not unprecedented. It's yeah. more a return to form. And meanwhile, the Republicans are, you know, circa 1920. Um, There's a lot more where that came from, dear listeners. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. Support our work and get access to bonus episodes as we grow the site into a bigger community. Hope to see you in the bonus.